Hi, and welcome to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton, and guess what? We have passed the 200th episode mark of Beyond Well. And not to toot our own horn too much, but we are so proud of some of the shows we've done. So we want to make sure you've had a chance to hear them all. We have gathered up a few of our best episodes on depression, and we're going to highlight them in the next few weeks. But first, we want to thank our sponsor, Active Recovery TMS, your choice for TMS in the Pacific Northwest. There is no reason for anyone to suffer from treatment-resistant depression with the technology of transcranial magnetic stimulation now available and covered by most insurances. For more information or to figure out if you qualify for treatment, go to activerecoverytms.com. We've had some great episodes on depression and how to cope. Here's one of our favorites featuring Kelly Williams-Brown. Welcome back to Beyond Well with Sheila Hamilton. Kelly Williams-Brown, it is so good to see you. Oh my God fabulous to see you Sheila I mean it always is but it's been too long and I just love I always love a chance to get to talk to you and this is kind of both our wheelhouses so yeah your book had me I read it in one day uh beachside and I think I'm thinking that I'm in the most hilarious touching poignant funny and then all of a sudden I'm crying I need to know from the very start why you structured your book the way you did to reveal that you had a suicide attempt so late. It almost hit me like a frying pan, Kelly. It was so unexpected. Oh, well, it was really hard. And, you know, anytime we write a book, we figure out later what we wish we had done. And really, I'm, I'm happy with the book. But one thing that I would have changed is I think I would have let my reader know a little bit earlier. I tried to sort of weave in things like it's going to get very dark. It's going to get darker than I imagine. And, you know, I did label the chapters right beforehand. I was like, hey, so this contains some suicide stuff. So if you don't want to read that or hospitalization, you can just skip forward two chapters and it'll be a lot happier at that point. But part of it was also that it was a surprise to me. I did a little bit want to convey how quickly and how sort of dangerously once I was on this medication, things that had been barely being held together really fell apart fast. That's something that can happen. And I want people to know that. The shock of it is exactly what happens for many people who love someone who makes Mm -hmm. a suicide attempt. You see that they're struggling. You're talking about where they're at. And then all of a sudden, it's very, very real. I want to parse out how much of this do you think was the ongoing problems with your divorce and the election and the broken limbs and all of the difficult things you dealt with in those 700 days and how much of it was the reaction to a very bad prescription? I wish I could tell you, but you know, I, there's not a total way that I can. I will say that of all the things that happened to me in the book, setting the medication aside, the most painful one was the abrupt and still to me not entirely understandable loss of my two closest friendships. We were so close. I mean, one of them lived in the house with me. They were the people that I had dinner with. They were the people where we do this at Christmas time. And then this is how we celebrate this person's birthday by going to that. 
you know, lodge and they just gave so much shape to my life. And I didn't even know how to put a name to that grief mm. until when I was at the hospital and someone called it catastrophic loss of chosen family. Mm. And I was like, that fits a lot better what I'm going through than my friends don't like me anymore. And I don't know why, but a lot of it was also this medication, you know, for me as someone with major depression and ADHD medication is absolutely life-saving, but something that I personally will never do again would be to take a prescription from, you know, maybe like now I see a psychiatrist, yeah, someone who specializes in brain chemistry because it is funky. It is weird. Yeah. I've had experiences with an antidepressant where it didn't really work for me before, yeah. but this one sent me into a mania. And also wasn't really addressing sort of the underlying problems. Now I'm still sad and I still don't like my life at all, but I have a lot of energy. I have no impulse control and I'm full of plans. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and that's a documented thing that happens. I don't want to put anyone off trying medication if that is what is part of your brain health, which it absolutely is for me. But I yeah. do want to say something I'll do in the future going forward is every time I'm on a new medication, I tell the people closest to me, mm -hmm. I tell my mom, I tell my partner, my boss. And so I'll say, hey, I'm starting this. Please let me know if you see any surprising changes in me. Mm -hmm. Because of course, we can't always see them in ourselves because that's part of what medication can do. You know what I mean? Yeah. The last time I saw you in person, we talked extensively about this very similar experience that I had where my husband who had, you know, had a series of catastrophic losses in his relationships ended up not being able to sleep. And so he asked a doctor friend of his for medication and they gave him an antidepressant and the exact same thing happened. And as you know, my husband completed suicide. And so forgive me for starting with such monumental place in your book, Kelly, but I felt like if I could only have talked to Kelly, if I could only have spoken to her. Yeah. If only me then could speak to me. And it's hard because, you know, any medication you get, it has the pages and pages of warnings and you're like, well, surely not. And I know it is impossible to navigate our mental health care system and it's broken in so many ways. Yeah. And if you find a psychiatrist that is taking new patients, they're going to be like, great, I can see you in December. And yeah. right now it's June, but you just have to make that appointment and establish that care eventually. Because as I say in the book, it's something that's literally one three hundredth the size of my breakfast that can make me get up in the morning and enjoy life again. Of course, it's powerful. Yeah. We all have different chemistries. We all have different everything. That, that is one takeaway is that, you know, if medication is part of it, then be mindful and aware before you go in to take it. Be careful that it's a provider that you really trust and that you have built-in check-ins. Yeah. I want to just, I'm going to just stay here for just one more minute and then move to just like the phenomenal writing and how honest and, oh my God, just brilliant you are, especially the way that you've used crafts to keep yourself alive. But I'm curious if once you went into your psychiatric stay and you began to sort of see, this is what I have to do to get out. And this is what I have to say to be able mm -hmm. to have my freedom again. And if you actually made a plan for, for self-care and for self-salvation, because the one thing that I notice is people get so um, focused around getting released from psychiatric care that oftentimes after they're out, they're like, oh, wait a minute. 
I don't know who it is I'm going to call if I start spinning again, or I don't know what it is that I'm going to do that's any different. So talk to me about your self-preservation plan. Sure. And before I do this, I want to say that I mentioned by name in my book, which institution it was that I went to. And overall, that was a really great experience for me. If it were any organ where I had been very, very sick on the brink of death, and then I got somewhere, I got the right diagnosis, I, I was able to get medically stable, and I was able to leave with a care plan that would be a very happy story, you know, but it can't be treated that way because it's a psychiatric hospital rather than a hospital hospital. It's my brain instead of my spleen. I do want to say that up front. I, when I left, I had an appointment set up with a therapist two weeks after I left, which neither my then boyfriend nor mother liked very much. They found that very stressful and I understand why. And when I finally did see my therapist, he was a little incensed. He is like, I am not the appropriate level for of care for you right now. And you, you know, he sort of went through, you've got inpatient, you've got residential, you've got intensive outpatient, yeah. you've got blah, 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 blah. And then you've got therapy at the bottom and that's where we are right now and that's not enough. So with his help, I was able to find an intensive outpatient program, which was three hours a day, three days a week. And again, it was a care team. I spent an hour and a half talking to the psychiatrist there, which is more time than I've ever spent with any doctor in my life. You know what I mean? It's hard. You get 15 minutes, they're in, they're out. But this was like really an in-depth conversation. And then, you know, it was a lot of like group work and a lot of some working with one-on-one with someone. And that was wonderful. It certainly was not a cheap proposition. I was buying my own healthcare then. I did have a decent plan, but I think it was still like a 30 or $40 copay every time. And that adds up over the course of six or seven weeks. That's one of the challenges is that like I had the very best situation possible and it, it still happened. And, you know, that's another takeaway that people who have tried to navigate the mental health care system before already know so well. We have to do better because we're living in times of despair. People are disconnected. People feel like they don't matter. We're all very upset for different reasons about how the world is going. In addition to addressing those systemic things, we all have to be trying to find some inner peace so that we're as healthy as possible to face the challenges every day. One of the most lovely things about this book is how much I felt seen and heard because of your willingness to talk openly about Trump's election for many Mm -hmm. progressives had this kind of deep dive in their psyches about how are we going to get through this at the same time that we went into a pandemic. And I don't get around the table with a lot of other liberals and go, Jesus, wasn't that destabilizing? And didn't you just feel like the world was ending? And did you just crawl under your covers? There is a way in which we all kind of outwardly pretended we're okay People are posting on Instagram about, I just finished another manuscript. And I'm like, what? I am not doing well. How are you doing these things? Kelly, thank you so much for just putting it out there, honestly, how hard it was. Well, you're so welcome. With the caveat that like, I'm sure there are people with different political opinions who felt the exact same way when Joe Biden was elected or when Barack Obama. Part of the terror was feeling, I just didn't value the same things that my country did. And part of it was just fear because with a quote unquote normal Republican, which I think we can agree that in terms of presidential behavior, Mm -hmm. his was different. Some people liked that it was different. I found that stressful. I don't like big changes uh, like that, you know, but it was also just like, what is going to happen? John Mulaney had a great joke about Trump 
where he's like, it's like there's a horse in the hospital and you don't know what he's going to do. Nobody knows what he's going to do. There's a horse in the hospital. Shouldn't be a horse in the hospital. <laughs> and I really felt like, yes, there's a horse in the hospital and I don't know what's going to happen, especially because you do that thing where you're trying to cheer yourself up and you're like, well, it's, I'm sure it's going to be better than I think it's it is. It's a dancing horse. And those first few months felt especially wild because yeah. it was all of a sudden our government was functioning in an incredibly different way and not just different from the prior administration, but different from past Republican administrations yeah. too. It was just like, yeah. I don't know what's going to happen. And that just lent me this feeling that everything was destabilized, you know, and I'll be honest, I am very glad that President Trump isn't the president anymore. And I still have a lot of anxiety yeah. about our country and about the people in it who are suffering about the fact that like so many people are turning to drug addictions and jobs and this huge increase in homeless folk. I still feel afraid and I still feel very nervous. I often feel like I'm going to be okay when I talk to other people that are witnessing it because I walk around with this kind of sensitivity to the unhoused on our streets and to what seems like a, a level of panic in our country around mm -hmm. this so-called recovery that feels very tenuous to me. Yes. And reading your book helped me go, okay, there's somebody else who's noticing this. And also the fact that you continued to use humor throughout the entire thing is such a valve release. I mean, it just was like, yes, it is really hard. And we can also really find to laugh about. <laughs> so, Oh, there's totally. <laughs> and I do this anyway in my life. A lot of it I had to say, okay, what's funny about this? Because otherwise it's just a chronicle of someone sort of suffering. It's not suffering on a, on a massive, it's a privileged suffering. You know, yeah. I, I had a house, I had a place to live. When you can make a joke out of something, you claim a certain amount of power over it. Mm-hmm. You know, satire is the weapon of the powerless against the powerful. And in this case, the powerful was this crippling medical issue that I was going through. Yeah. Also the physical injuries, which, you know, if, even, I hope this is okay, quote unquote normies, you know, people who tend to have a very stable, balanced mental chemistry yeah. can really get depressed, even with something that seems like a minor injury, like breaking an arm or something, oh, because right. all of a sudden you are so reliant on others. Yeah, That's a frustrating feeling for a lot of us. A lot of us really don't feel comfortable asking for help. Yep. You're tired. It's hard to get around your home. In my case, I didn't have either of my arms. So I had, I had gone from being a very able-bodied person in my 30s to have all sorts of, you know, things like loofah on a stick to shower by myself. You know, one of my arms was in a long cast, so it was bent at the elbow, but it went from my fingertips to my armpit. And the other arm was just strapped down to my waist. So I had one hand and I could use it to do things, but only if those things happened to be located right by my belly button, which I wish I had a camera because that would have been some prime physical comedy. I wish I could watch myself. <laughs> I can't believe I didn't think to film any of it because I would have loved to laugh at that now. There are these periods where I really do feel like we all get kind of tested. Uh, my daughter was diagnosed in the same year that I divorced and I kept thinking, I wonder if Kelly and I should just go down the list and just have this tap. But I did not break both arms. And I promise you, I think that your injuries made your situation way, way worse. 
And I will tell you, because I think part of it, Kelly, is that a little bit of it is, do we have enough self-worth to have people take care of us? That's part of the question that people ask themselves who are sensitive. And I can imagine for you, it was very, very difficult to now need almost 24-hour care. Yeah, that was hard. I think that would be hard for everyone. And I want to say for the record, I'm not a mom, but I know a lot of moms. And I think it, it was a cancer type diagnosis. Yeah. 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 I think if you said to any mom, how would you feel about your 17, 18 year old being diagnosed with cancer? Which would you rather have that or you break both your arms? I think everyone picks two arms broken. So it's not, it's not a comparison, but I just (laughs) want to put that out there. Um, Well, and another really tough thing about being injured is that you're in pain. You know, it's something that I've been lucky enough not to have, but there's so many people in chronic pain and it's hard to overstate how much of your energy that takes away from you and your ability to do the healthy things that, you know, will make you feel better, like socializing, you know, like going on a walk, all these things are such uphill battles. And on top of that, you have to be very careful about your painkiller use because so many people's lives fall apart that way. You know, they, they break something or they have a back injury and now you've got, you know, so for me, like kind of, you know, to circle back to the title for me, you You see how I'm going in reverse than most of the podcasts you've done. You're like, what the hell is happening? Because I start at the thing that everyone else carefully builds up to. And you're like, Sheila, Sheila, I have an amusing story to tell you off once we're off record, but um, I promise you, this is like far from the most shocking interview I've had. And I love it. I I mean, I think it's great. And I think it's important. And like, really, if you ask me what message do you want people to take away from your book, the one that you started with is absolutely one of the primary ones. Uh, Having crafts, I could do one craft when I had both my arms broken. Wow. And um, which one was that? The stars? Was that the little That stars? was the stars. They are beautiful. They look like little chiclets. I know. People yeah. always expect their candy. And usually by the time they look close, they realize they're made of paper. Yeah. But sometimes they don't. And that's fun too for me. Yeah. I'd for probably that. eat a lot of those at your house if I came Pop-up over. It looks no. pretty. But it's not an eating thing. If you if you taste it, yeah. it tastes like paper. And so. also you could fold those by your belly button, right? Yep you know, like an otter in reverse or something. But then I could sort of like scoop them in my hand, my hand that's by my belly button and like sort of get up and walk over and like let them fall in the bowl. (laughs) Oh, it was a pathetic time, Sheila. No, but honestly, just the fact that you found something creative to do says to me that you were ready to live again. I mean, to me, because otherwise you spend a lot of time ruminating and you spend a lot of time in your head and don't use your hands, right? Exactly. Making crafts, but not just making crafts, cooking, especially like prepping to cook, you know, chopping something, playing an instrument. There's so many sort of repetitive, really, you, you have to focus on that very moment. Mm. And that is so helpful. That That is indeed a meditation. It's a little bit of an easier one because it's hard to just sit with your thoughts quietly. Yeah. But even I would practice sort of redirecting my thoughts yeah. when I was making a star, you know, this is terrible. Why did this happen to me? I don't mm. have any arms. My boyfriend is kind of MIA when I wish he were here. And then I'd be mm. like, okay, well, those are all like just judgments that you're having in your head that don't really have any bearing. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's like just look at this little star closely and try to make these folds as perfect and precise as we can. 
I, I told you before we started recording, I'm not a craftsperson, but what I loved about these is they really are mind directors. Almost yeah. every craft that you talk, because that's also what I think recipes do is they you must focus. So mm -hmm. this is, you can focus. They're not the most like difficult crafts. They're not like you don't have 12 steps and, you know, a hundred yeah. different items to make them perfect for Pinterest. This is really about working with your mind, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think when I craft, the important part is the doing, not the outcome. Yeah. And I try really not to have a specific expectation. Like if it turns out nice, that's wonderful. You know, my dear family friend, Carol, sort of a secondary mom to me is an artist. And she said, you know, I really don't try to think a lot about it once I'm done. She's like, you know, sometimes oh, wow. I really don't like it. And then I like it later. Or sometimes I do like it at first. But then later I'm like, oh, I don't like this. And she's like, but that's not really the point. She's like, you know, if other people want to enjoy it, that's great. But for me, it was the making of it rather than feeling like, okay, I should do this. And then it should turn out like this. You know what I also just thought was brilliant was the difference from you looking back at you, the person who wrote your breakout New York Times bestseller book, Adulting, versus this very human look at what happens to us when we have to confront our darkest weakest, most vulnerable side. I want you to talk a little bit about some of the conversations you had with yourself regarding that girl who wrote the first book and the girl that you had to be to save your own life. It's funny because I was like, wow, does this book cancel out adulting? And I really don't think it does. You know, adulting mm -hmm. was a reported project yeah. and it's full of like good practical information, much of which I was using even during these times on how to properly wash your clothes and yeah. how insurance works, you know, that, that other people had told me that I did not have within myself. So yeah. I maintain that, that adulting is a good read. And I've always done this, you know, it's not just with adulting. It's I try to present myself as very together. You know, I, I dress up every day. Mm -hmm. You know, I wear a dress every day because I like how dresses look. And I'm someone who can talk in front of a crowd. And I'm someone who is outgoing, albeit still an introvert. Like yeah. my social battery drains fast, but, but I do have one. And then when I couldn't maintain that, I just disappeared. Mm. When I didn't have it in me to get up and go out and socialize and see people and do things, I just didn't reply to texts. My world really, really shrunk until it was basically the size of my little house and the three or four people that I was close enough to. It's okay to be someone who likes to appear composed in public. Like, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. Yeah, you know what I mean? Totally. You know, if somebody asks me how I'm at the grocery store, I'm not going to be like, you know, yeah, uh, I'm in a deep depressive episode. <laughs> Last night, you know, I had some passive ideation. You know what I mean? Like, you're not going to do that. But to me, it was a real challenge to be honest and open because I've never really written about myself. You know, I was a newspaper yeah. reporter and I had a column where sometimes I, I would be doing something silly, you know, like visiting baby animals, you know, but nothing serious. And even in adulting in my second book, Gracious, I was like sort of more of a foil of irresponsibility and unknowing to compare to this person who did yeah. know what was going on. And it was hard. It was really personal. But now on the other side of it, everybody's like, wow, I can't believe, you know, you were so honest and you talked about so much. But part of my ability there to have been honest about that is taking an advice that I got from you, which is that I didn't write about it while I was going through it. Yeah. I didn't put these stories out while I was still so vulnerable. Yeah. I waited. I made sense of everything. 
-hmm. I did the enormous heavy work of changing my life in a lot of ways. And now I, I do feel like a very different person from the person in the book. And it's almost like I have a tremendous amount of sadness and compassion and fear for that version of myself and gratitude that I came through it when that really easily could not have happened. And so that's a long-winded way of saying it felt hard to be honest, but also in some ways, in a weird way, I do not think that the message of this conflicts with adulting. I think sometimes the older we get, the more sort of real tough challenges we have, not necessarily as a function of age, but as a function of time. And living. Yeah, people are going to die. Friendships are going to fall apart or become, you know, less important than they are to you when, you know, you're in your 20s. And divorce and, oh, there's so much fun stuff ahead of you for the young people out there. You know, though, Kelly, I I do think that it's one of the most extraordinary, I want to keep saying easy crafts for the insane, easy crafts for the insane, because you must buy this book and, and read it, if only to understand that every one of us have this kind of dark shadow self. We have this unsure, wounded, very mer- mercurial in, in your case and vastly talented self. And I don't Thank see you. them as being different. I see mm-hmm. them as being just parts of ourselves that most of us hide. And that's why I think the book is so remarkable is that you have really said, no, I am all of these people. I am the girl yeah. who dresses up and has it together. And I know how to cook that chicken and clean my house and that pillow should go there. And I can do that. But I also, as a human being, struggle. And I really think it's the most extraordinary part of your book that you managed to just put it all out there in a way that you can think you're reading a summer romp in some ways at the beginning. <laughs> oh, here we go. Um, I think it's also important to say that so many of us will just have a really hard period. And for many yeah. of us, that is immediately past or still ongoing, where you think, okay, this is who I am. This is what my life consists of. This is what I do. And then catastrophe or trauma or whatever happens. And you're like, wow, a lot of those things that I thought about myself and my life turned out not to be true. Mm-hmm. And now I have to rebuild. I think, yes, those those people do live within us. When I was talking about this with a friend of mine who is a manager or boss for many, many different people, and he hears a lot of different kinds of problems. And he's like, you have no idea how close everyone can be to the edge where it's just one thing that can send you over. And my takeaway from that and, and my response to that is, okay, I need to build a life in which I have lots of little life preservers. You know what I mean? Lots Mm -hmm. of things that keep me tethered and lots of things that get me out of the house, get me going, interacting. And so my time since the end of these books has really been a lot of that work. Mm -hmm. It's not just one bad period. It's not your 700 days that you describe. I think that, you know, suffering is part of being alive and it's what, how we choose to go through the suffering and who we choose to reach out to and what we can derive from how we make it. One of the wonderful things, I always say this to people who make attempts in their teens or their 20s, you have just done your PhD for life. You have just figured out how to live. This is, that's a horrible way to, to think about getting your PhD. But what I'm saying is there's a reason 
that if we explore these circumstances with a lot of curiosity and we find ways to better ourselves and to be more generous and to be more really holistically healthy, mm-hmm. then was it worth it? What maybe this yes. is preparing us for the next worst time. I, I tell people, Kelly, if I hadn't yeah. lost my husband to suicide, I would not have made it through my daughter's diagnosis. I know that because yeah. I didn't have any of the skills for coping. None. Yeah. I, and people say, I'm so sorry that you went through all this. And I'm like, well, I'm not because I now know that I can get through so much more than I thought I could. I know that I can persevere. You know, I just have so many skills and abilities that I used to not have. And it made getting through the pandemic and the quarantine much easier for me, even though within a week, all these outside things that I had built to keep myself strong and safe were just gone. You know, my Girl Scout troop was gone. My trivia night was gone. My part-time nonprofit job, which really like gave me a lot of structure, which is very helpful for ADHD people, gone. And I I thought, wow, how is this going to be? But what I found out is that I could continue doing that work. And also all of the internal work, like so many different coping mechanisms and skills. My belief system, quite a bit of it takes after my grandmother, who was a Zen Buddhist. And having dialogues with myself where I'm like, brain, I hear you're saying something mean. And I don't know if I actually need that input right now. Uh, So we're going to shelve this for a while because I'm in the middle of trying to have a conversation. So, you know, if you want, we can bring this back up later. And even just doing little things like labeling my thoughts. I'm having a feeling about being worthless. I'm having a feeling about helplessness for my future. These are just things that my brain is choosing to do. And it has done a lot of good for me to realize that emotions in a given moment, they're like the weather. You can't control them it's okay to have them, you know, but that's a good time to be like, okay, well, should I open my umbrella? And doing that kind of stuff has also been very, very helpful for me. But all of these are my techniques and things that have worked for me. And I really can only speak to my journey in in this. Except for that they're evidence-based, you know, there's a lot of really big double blind studies that back up what you just said. So um, I want people to hear it and listen. I also really want people to read this book. This is not a book for people who have mental illness. This is a book for people who want to learn about the human condition and the extremes of what we can suffer and still get through it with a lot of humor and grace. What do you want people to come away from after reading your book? I I want, just like you said, for people to know that we can endure so much and we can do so much that we are not aware of until we're called upon to do it. Mm. I want people to know that sometimes life just sucks. Sometimes it does. It can suck for a while. My friend Allison told me something really smart. She said, you know, after a terrible breakup with a long-term person, you open your eyes in the morning, you wake up, and for maybe 15 seconds, you don't remember that that has happened. Yeah. And then you do remember that those 15 seconds are the best part of the day. And don't feel like getting out of bed because getting out of bed means getting up into the world where this happened. You walk down the hall and you just hate everything. You hate this picture of you back when you were happy. You hate the Crest Corporation. You hate your toothbrush. You hate your teeth. But she said, you just have to acknowledge that you're not going to feel like this forever because nothing lasts forever. Mm -hmm. And 
presumably in the future, you're going to want to have your teeth. So you just brush them anyway. And that's been really helpful to me. And just remembering we all have highs, we all have lows, you know, brain stuff or not. And some times in our lives are going to be full of joy and excitement. And some parts are going to be tedious, difficult, seemingly impossible. Mm Mm-hmm. I would like people to take away the medication thing that we talked about at the top of the hour. And I'm really glad you brought that up. And I would like people to take away that a lot of the sort of exterior work I've done was things to get me not spending as much time on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or just sort of on screens in worlds that I don't fully belong to Mm. and really find face-to-face activities. Yeah volunteer opportunities. I have a little park across the street. It has a festival every year. So I love volunteering for that. And sometimes, you know, they'll do little work parties out there and I'll, I'll be there too. I've gotten to know all of my neighbors. I've found ways to tether myself and take myself out of my head. And I think even if we feel like we're a shy person, that those meaningful relationships mm-hmm. can be really helpful. And and sometimes they happen online, but more often they're face-to-face. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that because like just the data that we're seeing about people under 30 in terms of the amount of hiding that's still going on post-pandemic, you know, people really not making re-entry very well. It's, it's really much more difficult than a lot of people are acknowledging. Uh, especially for people who struggled mightily during the pandemic. So one of the things you can do is definitely pick up this book. Did you read your own book for the audio book version as well? I did. Uh, did. How was that when you actually read the hardest part? Oh, you know, it was really interesting. Um, I went through so many rounds of edits with this book, uh, probably six or seven. By the time I was done, I felt really proud of my book. I thought it's not Faulkner, but this is the very best book I could have written. Yeah. But I also felt like at a certain point, not as emotionally engaged in what was happening. You know, I could read it almost like it was a story that was happening to someone else. Of course. Yeah. But when I read the audio book, it became so much more real because Mm -hmm. I was sitting there in a room telling the story of the worst part of my life. And Mm -hmm. interestingly enough, the hospital stuff didn't really affect me. The only part of the book where I just had to take a break afterward was an incident I described that both the day that my cat died and also the last day I saw my former mother-in-law, whom I had truly, truly loved, was an incredibly painful relationship to lose. And that was really hard. Most people are fine with when their pets die. They think it's great. But me, I'm a little more sensitive. No, I mean, of course, you know, that's always a very tender loss. But that was really, really hard. Both of those are very normal human things that have nothing to do with brain chemistry. They're the losses that we suffer. Uh, And that's what it is, as you said, to be human is to absorb those things, to really feel and grieve, and then to hopefully take your lessons, say, what did I learn here? What could have been done maybe a little better? And then move forward with that. And that's all we can do. And it's the only way to make something out of our suffering. Mm. Kelly Williams Brown, the book, a phenomenal read. I have um, bought three copies to give to my closest girlfriends because I'm so hopeful that they sit down and read it, if not just to understand some of the stories that we tell ourselves, but also how to really help people who may be struggling with any kind 
of mental health condition or just with the isolation and the accidents that we're all going to suffer at some point in our life. Yeah. Maybe not three limbs all at once, Kelly, but you know. Well, hopefully, ideally not. Um... <laughs> and Kelly, there's always a moment where I think, oh God, I should have asked that. Is there anything that we missed? One thing I would give as a takeaway to folks who have people in their lives who are struggling similarly. Yeah is one thing that sort of complicated my anguish when I was really depressed is I'm letting down my friends and I'm letting down my family, but I also don't have it in me to really be there the way I want to be. And one really supportive message that I got from a friend was just saying, hey, I know you might be having a hard time and I just want you to know I love you. You don't have to text back. You don't have to do anything, but I'll check back in a week. Mm. You know, and, and that could be really helpful to take the onus off them and to say, like, don't let this message of love become another thing that you feel like you've done wrong. Just yeah. know that it's there. Know that it's available. And I don't expect anything from you right now. Yeah. Beautiful way to end. Kelly, thank you again. Thank this you, program is brought to us by the amazing people at Fora Health. Kelly Williams Brown, thank you again for writing this book. You are such a talent. And that was the show. Thanks for your support of Beyond Well. If you like what you hear, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts and spread the word to your friends. If you want to reach me individually, you can always reach out at Sheila at Beyond Well Media. And I hope you make it a great day. Fora Health is a nonprofit alcohol and drug treatment center in Portland, Oregon, that has been helping youth, adults, and families for nearly 50 years. They offer compassionate, comprehensive, and affordable care for everyone, regardless of background, orientation, or ability to pay. Fora recently opened a new state-of-the-art campus in Portland's Southeast Gateway District, and the entire campus is healing and supportive. You can find out more about their full array of evidence-based therapies for drug and alcohol treatment at www.forahealth.org. If you or a loved one needs support, there are many options and personalized approaches to care. Reach out to Fora Health at 503-535-1151 or see the show notes for more details.